In the Pew Bible, you can open to page 1021. If you've got your Bible with you, we're in 1 John. We're kind of well into the book now. I think this is our fourth or so sermon into 1 John, which we're working our way through until the summer. And this is going to be a normal sermon, and most of the rest of them will. Right? What we usually do is we take a book of the Bible and we work our way through it, one passage at a time, beginning to end. So we're at the beginning of chapter 2 this morning, and verses 1 through 6 are our sermon text. So if you'll follow along with me in your Bible, this is the Word of God. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of God. Pray with me, please. Jesus, thank you that you were made like us in every respect except for sin. That you have become for us a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of your Father. That you have made the atoning sacrifice for our sin, yourself. Help us to understand the love of Christ and its length and width and height and depth from this text today, that we might be more like the Son and call others to salvation in Christ as well. Thanks for giving us this text and this time to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You guys know what a parking brake is, right? It's that thing you put on with your foot or your hand to keep your car from rolling down the hill. You ever, you ever tried to drive with the parking brake on? I have. I've done it more than once, actually. And one of the most memorable times that I drove with a parking brake on was when I was still working on the farm. I was loading out some corn from a grain bin. What that means is you're taking corn out of the bin, you're pumping it through an auger, and it dumps it into a grain truck, right? And then you drive the grain to the feedlot, and you feed it to the tasty cattle so they can get tastier. So that's what I was doing. I was making tasty cattle, or helping cattle become tasty, by filling up a grain truck. And so I put on the parking brake of that grain truck, because I was in the back of the truck. I was all by myself, right? And I did not want it moving while I was making sure the grain was loading evenly so the truck would drive well. And then I got in the truck to drive it up to the feedlot, up to the harvest store, as we called the place, and I forgot to take the parking brake off. And it was really, really hard to get a fully loaded grain truck moving at all. You know, you're in first, it's like, what is wrong with this thing? It won't move. And after a little while, smoke starts billowing out from underneath the grain truck, right? And I don't know if you know how well grain burns, but it burns really well. And so the immediate thought is, I'm in an on-fire grain truck. This is really bad. But then it occurred to me, it was just I'd forgotten to take the parking brake off. And all was well. And I got to the feed yard and we fed the corn to the tasty cattle who became tastier. So it's hard to drive. It's hard to drive with a parking brake on. You can't really ever get going the way you're supposed to in the vehicle. 
keep going with the driving metaphor, have you ever tried to take a long trip without referencing a map to see where you're going? I've done that too. After college graduation, I uh, took off on a three-week cross-country trip to see America with a friend of mine. And our first day's drive, we were headed down to Oklahoma, right? We were trying to stay with people we knew to make it cheaper. So we had a friend in southern Oklahoma. We're going from Nebraska. It's practically a straight line. How hard could this be? Right? And this is in the days when maps were on, on things like paper instead of on your phone. There was no such thing as a map or a GPS system. So we're driving a straight shot down the highway to our friend's house in Oklahoma, and then we get to a road closed sign. Right, The bridge is out, and they're doing repair work. It's like, well, it's only a couple of miles. Surely this will not. We could just go off on this dirt road and go around and get back on the highway, right? Well, we didn't quite double our travel time that day by that little detour, but we came close wandering around in the dirt roads, and I don't know if it was northern Kansas or northern Oklahoma or southern Kansas. I think we complete. It's like, how hard is it to find a highway? Apparently, it's nearly impossible when you're in the rural cornfields in that area. And we got good and lost. Taking a long trip without bothering to look at the map to see where you're going can make for a much longer trip. Or as uh, Pippin Pippin says, Peregrine Took says, I think it's uh, shortcuts make for long delays, right? I think that's what it says in Fellowship of the Ring. So last week, our passage then is working with a few of these ideas. Our passage taught us criteria for assurance of salvation. How do I know I'm really saved? And for assessment, how do I know I should really listen to you if you're teaching me the gospel? so that we can be faithful to the end. And it gave us a creed last week. It gave us the measuring standard, God is light. And in him there is no darkness, none at all. And the criteria taught us is that if we line up with God in living in light and not in darkness, and if we agree with God about our sin, if we confess it and admit that it's wrong, and claim the forgiveness of the blood of Jesus Christ by faith, then we have assurance And living Christian life without assurance of salvation, without actually knowing whether God's really saved me or not, it's a lot like trying to live the Christian life with a parking brake on. You can never really get going because you're never really sure if you're safe. And eventually smoke starts coming out the bottom, right? And then you start wondering if you're actually on fire and something bad's about to happen. Living the Christian life without assurance of salvation is like trying to drive with a parking brake on. We need to get that parking brake off. And have assurance. First John is a book to help us with that. And the criteria also taught us to assess the route that we're being on, that we're on, and to assess the people who are saying, this way, go this way, this is the right direction for you. Whether or not those instructions line up with the apostolic witness of the word of God, or whether these people are false teachers, it's teaching us there is a map, and you need to follow it to stay in the race and to stay on the route, trying to live the Christian life without assessment, without being careful who you listen to, without filtering everything through the lens of the Word of God and its truth, you're, you're probably eventually going to end up taking a long trip on a side road and get lost without your map. And it might take a long time to find the highway again like it took us. So assessment of salvation allows you to follow Jesus by being careful who you listen to and making sure that what's coming in lines up with the authority and the message of this text. And all of that is shown, all of that is evidenced. Remember, we had these evidence inference clauses, these if-thens. All of that is evidenced, and we infer that by whether or not what we say and what we do go together 
And those things line up with what Scripture says. That's essentially was what last week started us off with. This text is introducing its ideas to us. This morning's text comes straight out of last week's. In fact, it's closely connected to, it's continuing some of the same thoughts with assurance and assessment. And specifically focusing on one main theme, one of the biggest problems in Christian life for assurance and assessment. And that's sin. And what do we do with sin? And how do we deal with sin? And that'll help us get our parking brakes off so we can drive at the speed we need to. And that'll help us use the right map so we get to the destination we're aiming at. That's what we're listening to when we read the first verse again. Dear children, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. And if you're honest, that's one of your biggest problems in walking with Jesus and living your Christian life. How do we as Christians explain that I am in Christ and I am fully forgiven and I still have ongoing sin all the time? First John wants to help us with this. So the book, he says, I've written these things to you so you may not sin. It's part of the point of First John. Lately, I've been reading a book on Christian imagination. It's a collection of articles about how Christians can and should understand things like art and literature. And one of the articles I read is by Francis Schaeffer. It might be a familiar name to you. He's a PCA guy. He's one of the great apologists of the 20th century. And he's discussing how to understand and evaluate art in this book, but introduces a principle that's very helpful to understand what First John is doing. So the Christian worldview, Schaefer is going to write, or the Christian biblical outlook on life has both a major and a minor theme. And he's not using those terms musically. He's using them like big and small. They have a major and a minor theme. So a biblical worldview has to have both. He would say in the article, if it's going to be good art or good literature, it has to address both of these things. But I think actually it helps us understand what the text is doing because it's doing the same thing. Here's the minor theme. Schaefer says, is a, has to be part of a Christian worldview. It has to deal with the abnormality. He likes big words, so I'm going to use a couple of his big words. The abnormality of the revolting, rebellious world. The abnormality of the revolting, rebellious world. Both people who have rebelled against God and rejected Christ and are eternally lost, and the defeated and sinful part of Christian life. That's the minor theme, whether you're eternally lost and sinning or whether you're a Christian and fighting and wrestling sin. That's the minor theme, the abnormality of a world rebelling against God. And he says, if we're honest, this is Schaefer, if we're at all honest, we must admit in this life, there's no such thing as totally victorious living. And if you apply the assessment of last week, that's true. Remember 1 John 1.8? If anyone says he is without sin... He's a liar, and the truth is not in him. Schaefer's agreeing. There's no such thing as totally victorious Christian living. That's the minor theme. The major theme is the opposite. It is that life is full of meaning and full of purpose. Life is meaningful, and life is purposeful because of two things. Because God actually exists and is who he says he is in the Bible. That makes life matter and gives it purpose because we are made in God's image. So because God exists and we're made in his image, life has meaning and life has purpose. And you can hear Ecclesiastes in the background of that, can't you? What makes life matter? What makes life last? Fear God and keep his commandments. 
That's the major theme. Life really matters. Life will last because God exists and he's made us in his image. But there's this minor theme of there are people who are lost in rebellion and we still wrestle with sin, right? Fear God and keep his commandments. Okay, what about when I don't? What about when I don't? A Christian worldview has to account for both of those things or it's not biblical and it's not really going to work well. You have to have a whole worldview to deal with both of those. So the major theme we see in verse 1, look at it again. In chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And now hear the minor theme following right after it. But if anyone does sin, and now listen to how the major theme always wins, and the minor theme always loses. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not just for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. That's how the major theme always triumphs. And the minor theme will always lose. I want to summarize these two things in two sentences, and then I want to tease them out for you just a little bit in these first two verses of chapter 2. First, I think it's teaching us take sin seriously and realistically. Take sin seriously and realistically. And second, believe in the power of the cross and trust Jesus completely. Believe in the power of the cross and trust Jesus completely. This is our confession, what we just did together. It's totally working on the same kind of major minor theme. So first, the Christian. A Christian is someone who takes sin seriously and realistically. Remember last week, 1 John 1.8, a Christian does not say, I have no sin. A Christian says, I am a sinner. And I understand that my sin is so serious that without any help from outside of me, I am rightly doomed to suffer just judgment at the hands of an angry, holy God. That sin is so serious, I have to have an advocate. I have to have someone who will stand with me and defend me. And I understand that God's love is so wide and long and high and deep that God has actually assigned me an advocate. He's provided one for me. It's his son, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the advocate. He's the defense attorney. I don't know if you're familiar with Cicero's famous joke. If we're going to start off making a good government, you remember what Cicero says? First, kill all the lawyers. Well, fortunately, this lawyer didn't stay dead. Here's a lawyer who came back from the dead to be our defense attorney. And that's how serious sin is, that if God does not provide the advocate, we're doomed to an eternity in hell, apart from God and everything that is good, in eternal darkness and eternal torment. And understand, if Jesus Christ does not stand as your advocate, this life right now, the one you're living This is the best life you will ever have now. Joel Osteen is just a little smidge correct and misses it completely in the rest of his theology. But he's right about this. If you're not in Christ, this is your best life now. You might as well live it because it's going to get a lot worse later. Eternity will be worse than you can possibly imagine if Christ is not your advocate. In the book Gentle and Lowly, which we read together in 2019, right? It goes with the book we're reading for Lent together right now, Deeper. 
That book, Gentle and Lowly, has a whole chapter on Jesus as our advocate. And it's one way that he's trying to help us, that author, see what the heart of Christ is like. Who is he? He's a righteous advocate. When the minor theme of life, we still sin and wrestle with sin as Christians. That's the minor theme of life. When that feels like that's all there is, and it's overshadowed the major, and I can't get out of it, and I can no longer hear life has meaning, life has purpose, because God exists and has made me in his image and has redeemed me in his son, and I just can't see that anymore because I'm drowning in the minor theme. Ortland writes, that's normal for a Christian for a few reasons when you're sinning, because when you're a Christian, your sin feels and you can see your sin as a lot worse than you did before. You have a better idea of how vile and evil sin is. Sin feels much worse as a believer in Christ. But we still do it. And sometimes, boy, we do it well. Like we're overachieving in the sin department and we're going all in on this one today. Appointing Jesus Christ is our advocate as your advocate. That's God's ways of keeping us in the race. He helps us just not quit and throw in the towel and let our feet, as Hebrews 12 says, get tangled up in sin and our hearts brought low in discouragement because I failed again and giving up and dropping out of the race because First John is written for it so that we can be faithful to the end. Don't give up. Keep on running. Get your eyes off yourself. Put them back on your Savior. In this text, understand that Jesus Christ is with you. And when you sin, he pleads your case for you. The minor theme doesn't ever win. Because Jesus Christ is your advocate. If you have faith and have been saved by grace in Christ. If you're a Christian, you have someone who will join your case. And he's been appointed by the judge himself. So you go stand by him. You plead his case before me so that when you've failed and when you fall and the accuser, the devil, comes out of the corner and says, I've got him, he's mine again. Kill him. Kill him. He's mine. I tricked him. He's fallen. Jesus Christ stands up and says, no. You need to find him not guilty. How does Jesus Christ plead the case for not guilty? before his father, the judge. Does he do it? Because he's really good at finding legal loopholes in the code so that he can drive a bus through it and get you off. Is that how Jesus does it? Or does he, does he create a matter of reasonable doubt, right? Just, let's just fuzz up this issue enough so that we'll make it great. That we're in, well, you know, I'm not sure if that was really her face on the surveillance camera footage. You, know, you couldn't quite, it maybe could have been someone else. Does he just create a reasonable doubt? How is it, does he give like the movies, right? A passionate closing speech where he really brings the jury home and oh, by the end of it, everybody's gonna release the innocent man. How does Jesus plead your case? What does verse 2 say? When you sin, when anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ sins, Jesus, as your advocate, gets a not guilty verdict returned by his cross. 
That's what propitiation means. It's an old-fashioned word that we need to not lose in the church. It means Jesus Christ becomes the atoning sacrifice for your sin. It means he dies in your place. It means the argument he makes as your advocate, when the devil comes and accuses you before the throne, he says, no, my blood has paid for that. I died for that. The penalty was on me. He's covered by my blood. Not guilty. Not because of anything you've done or can do. But solely because of his work on the cross. That's how Jesus becomes your advocate. And in Ortland, in his chapter, in Gentle and Lowly, his whole chapter on Jesus as our advocate, says if you want to know who God really is, this is a really good way to understand who, who God is. Look at the cross. Remember Moriah in Genesis 22? The place where God is seen is the place that God provides. The only begotten, promised son who goes on a three-day journey up a hill with wood on his back. And at the top of the hill, he's bound and placed on the wood. And there's a substitute sacrifice that takes place. Look at that spot. If you want to know who the God who sees and hears and remembers and knows and delivers that God. You want to know him. Look at the cross. Your sin meets Christ's sacrifice and you're saved. The major theme always wins over the minor by faith through grace in Christ. A biblical worldview will take sin so seriously to understand that the very Son of God took on flesh and died for you. That's what propitiation means. So a biblical worldview believes that sin is serious and takes it realistically. And it also believes completely and wholly in the cross of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And this text says that's not just for you. It's for all of God's people who are part of the covenant, right? The sins of the whole world. That's echoing Genesis 2. Do you remember Genesis 12? The Abrahamic covenant. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And I will make you a blessing for all the nations of the earth. That's not teaching universalist salvation any more than this text is. It's a text that through God's seed, through God's, sorry, Abraham's seed, through Abraham's son, whose name is Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection is completely sufficient for everyone whom, whom God has called and all of the families of all of the world. That's power. And everyone who believes in Christ is completely saved. So take sin realistically. Take sin seriously and trust in the cross completely. Understanding who Jesus is and his heart and that he runs toward you and he is your advocate, that's what pops the parking brake off in Christian life. It deals with the sin that so easily entangles, and it deals with the accusation that comes to you, where Jesus steps up beside you and says, no, not guilty. I died. So she doesn't have to. Drive forward in Christian life. Walk the life of Christian life. You're free. The parking brake is off. To live a life that matters and a life that lasts, the major theme, right? Fear God and keep his commandments. First John puts it, live a life of fellowship with each other and with God. Live a life of joy that is complete. 
Because Jesus is your advocate. The major theme wins over the minor one. And a life that matters and a life that lasts comes not out of your defeat and failure, but out of the life of Christ. Your life does not disprove his love for you. His life proves it. You recognize that? That's from this week's Christian formation class that we'll be in in just a few minutes. Out of the chapter we read this week. So that's the first part of the text. Now the rest of the text. The rest of the passage gives us, does the same thing it did last week. You need assurance. You need some assessment. Here are some criteria from which you can have evidence to draw an inference about whether you're really saved or not and whether the people you're listening to are leading you in the right direction. So we'll help with the map. The first two verses help with the parking brake. The last chunk of this text helps with the map. And it's basically the proof is in life. The proof is in life. Like we talked about last week, your life does not save you, but your life will show if you are saved. Commentator Douglas O'Donnell writes this. I think this is a great sentence or two summary. Authentic Christian, authentic Christianity is always obvious to all, isn't it? We're not playing games here. We all know the difference. We know that a saving relationship with God expresses itself not in sentimental language or mystical experience, but in moral obedience, a Christ-like walk with a limp, of course. So now we're turning to taking a trip using a map. And there are two claims that give us two more criteria as this book builds its case for assurance and for assessment. So the two claims... Start in verse 3, go through the middle of verse 5, and then the middle of verse 5 to the end. So let's look at the first one. If you claim to know, it's in the sermon outline in your bulletin. Criteria number one, by this we know. We've come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the word of God is perfected. So the parking brake comes off Christian life because Jesus is your advocate. What then? Well, if the parking brake's off, pedal to the metal, baby, right? Now it's time to do the weaving at 100 miles an hour like the maniacs on the interstate these days. You know, Now I can drive anywhere I want to. I don't need a map. Let's go off-roading with the new four-wheel drive I've got, right? That's what the parking brake's off. Let's go. You remember the beginning of Romans 6 where Paul has dealing with a similar argument? Well, if grace, sin makes grace abound, then I should just sin more, right? Do you know what the Phillips version translates? Paul Paul is a very strong imprecative against that view. You know how the Phillips, I think it's the Phillips version translates that? If, if sin causes grace to abound, should I sin even more? Hell no. That's how the Bible translates it in the Phillips version. That's capturing the essence of the way Paul is saying it pretty closely in the Greek. Absolutely not. He doesn't take the parking brake off so you can blast down the interstate weaving in traffic. He takes it off so you can take the trip using the map he's given you and enjoy it and have fellowship with each other and God as you do it. And what's the map? His commandments. 
And there's a clear contrast here. One of the ways First John often makes its point is clear contrast between two ways, one that leads to assurance and one that shows we're not saved. And they often contrast, and they're going to use a phrase that we are going to see a number of times in this book. Right In the introduction, I said, here's what I think the theme of the book is. By this we know. It's the first time we hear that. This is going to repeat a bunch. And I said in the introduction, if you want to know what this is, you've got to keep reading and study the book. Well, here's the first this that the this is this morning. By this we know. Here's the first this. How do we know? Personal holiness. That's how I would summarize it. Personal holiness. O'Donnell, again, says, while personal holiness is not the basis of our salvation— It is the clearest assurance that we are saved. So the contrast is going to be a common one that keeps going in the contrast. It's speaking or keeping, or what you say and what you do. By this, we know we've come to know Christ, if we keep his commandments, if we follow the map for the trip. If someone speaks a profession, I believe in Jesus— but is not actually living according to what Jesus commanded, what does 1 John say? Liar. Liar. And the truth is not in you. That's the contrast. There's only two choices here. Follow the map or go off-roading. Neither of those save you, but they will show clearly whether you are saved or not. So let's unpack that just a little bit more, because commandments is a broad term. First John is actually going to define this more through the course of the book. It's not defining it closely in this text. But there are some things Jesus tells his disciples to do, so we can draw on some context from the Gospels. And from Acts, we can say at least Jesus' commandments include some basic things like love God with all your heart and soul and everything you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. And make disciples, going, baptizing, and teaching. Those are some broad strokes. I think they sort of encompass the big idea of what Jesus' commandments are. Loving God, loving neighbor, and making disciples. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commands. And the contrast is stark in this text, isn't it? One person speaks and the other person does. And does that remind you of James 2 at all? Because that reminds me a lot of James 2, where James sarcastic, James is very sarcastic sometimes, and he is in James 2, where he says, show me your faith without works, right? Good luck with that. And I will show you my faith by what I do. The criteria, it seems to me, is pretty helpful in living in a day like ours when we in America live as Christians with the reality of compromised churches and the minor theme of compromised Christians kind of an everyday life. Christians and churches who've embraced or been duped by false teachers and false teachings, like First John was written just to warn us about. Be careful who you listen to. Don't follow society around you instead of Scripture. Don't give up on the gospel to be popular or to try to be relevant. Keep Jesus' commands. That's how God's love will be perfected in you. Right, and there are examples for ass- assessing false teachers and unsaved professing Christians around us Right now, you could come up with a million of them. We could ask questions like, where do you stand on the debate about homosexuality? What is your view of same-sex attraction? Where do you stand in the transgender ideology that's being forced down your throat in the commercials you watch and in the curriculum in your public schools and by your legislature? 
What is your view of pornography or fornication or committing adultery? Are those just normal everyday life now? We should just accept those things. How about people whose regular practice is slander? Who always have a little juicy tidbit to force down your throat? Who love to gossip? What about people who like causing division in the church because they don't get their own way? So they're going to cause problems for everyone else. What about people who claim to know God but don't keep his commandments? What are they? Liars. Liars. We're not playing games. How about churches that support, now we're talking about churches, support the homosexual agenda, that actively condone transgender lifestyles, or that pretend that by marrying two people of the same sex, they can call that marriage. It's not. What about churches that agree with the so-called right to murder our children in the womb that we call abortion? What about churches that have embraced relativism and feminism? What about people who claim to know God and don't keep his commandments? What are they called? They're liars. When I bike or drive to church here, I go by a church in our neighborhood that has a pride flag out front, and their kiosk says church. It's one or the other. It's not both. Liars. Liars. That should remind us of verses we read last week. You can't say that you don't sin and you know God. If you do, you're a liar. You can't say that you know God and not keep his book and his commandments. If you do, you're a liar. What about respectable sins? I forgot to leave those. I kind of forgot those off my list, didn't I? What about respectable sins? Like, I'm just going to keep everything I earn and spend it on myself and not use it to make disciples. Like, I just want a comfortable life. So I'm just going to keep my head down and my eyes just want to go to work and come home and practice my faith quietly in my closet and not tell anybody that I follow Jesus, denying him like Peter did on the night that Jesus went to the cross. What about that kind of sin? That's sin too. Make disciples is not an optional command. What about the Christian who just wants to lead the comfortable life? What about the Christian who's overcome an acedia and just doesn't care about the people around him who are digging their own graves? You can't say you know God and not keep his commandments. Liars. If we say we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then we will see it. And if we don't see it, how is it that you can say it? First John says, liar. Liar. These verses are intended to be a mirror for us to look at ourselves in. They're intended to be assessment of our own assurance. And they're intended to be assessment of false teachers and false churches. And like we said last week, don't forget the verb forms. Remember, this is, these are all present tense. These are not snapshots of life. These are videos. So if your general pattern of life, if the way that you usually conduct yourself, if your routine and your daily living, that's what it's saying. It's a video of life, not a snapshot. Because remember how the passage starts? We're writing these things so that you don't sin. But when you do, and you will, you have an advocate. We're not talking about the snapshot picture of the hand going for the cookie jar. 
Though that's a little pejorative and sin is way more serious than that. We're talking about what is your, what is your normal life look like? And is it constituted by keeping and striving to keep God's commandments? Or is it constituted just by speaking things that you never do? That's what it's asking. What's the normal pattern of your life? That's the first criteria. Are you using the map when you're taking the trip? Do you have assurance and assessment? Are you someone whose faith is just talk? Or do you do what you say? So here's the second criteria now when we come to the end of the passage. And we get our second, by this we know. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. Right? And that is not a reference to the Bengals' 1986 song, Walk Like an Egyptian. Right? In case, I had to get an 80s song in here somewhere. As though there's some sort of Christian way to stride. You know, that's not, that's not what it's talking about in life. It's talking about how you live. It's talking about what O'Donnell said that we read before. A saving relationship with God expresses itself not in sentimental language, or mystical experience, but moral obedience, a Christ-like walk with a limp, of course. This is evidence and inference. Live as Jesus lived. And if you are, if that's your normal life, then you should have assurance and you should be able to trust someone else who's doing the same thing. You know that you abide, you remain, you dwell, you live with Christ. And First John's going to flesh that out with lots more content too. But this morning, I think it gives us at least enough context to make this application. What does it mean to walk as Jesus walked? How is it that Jesus walked? Look at verses 1 and 2. They'll clearly tell you. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not just for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. How does Jesus walk? When you are in the vile pit of the sewage of your sin, when you stink, when you're in such darkness that you can't see anymore, in your sin. The minor theme is triumphing at the moment. What does Jesus do? Does he say, that's too bad, I can't deal with that, or boy, I hope you learned a lesson, or that's too dark for me to wade into, or I don't want to get myself dirty. What does he do? Jesus Christ runs towards sinners. He doesn't run toward us to kick us when we're down. He comes alongside of us to be our advocate, to pick us up off the ground and say, no, this is mine. I paid for this. Not guilty. You're still my child. Jesus Christ runs towards sinners. And he runs toward you to be the atoning sacrifice for your sin. So walk as Jesus walked. Now let me come back to the list I gave you a little while ago. Do you run toward the homosexual? Do you run toward the person who's wrestling with their gender identity or struggling with same-sex attraction? Do you run toward them? Because Jesus Christ does. Do you run toward the, the abortion advocate who thinks murdering children is a good idea? Do you run toward the person who's gossiping and slandering? Do you run toward the porn addict? Do you run toward the man or woman in adultery? Do you run toward the feminist? Do you run toward the materialist? Do you run toward the person who's greedy and idolatrous? Do you run toward the person who's slothful and lazy? Do you run toward the person who's too afraid to stand up for Christ? Do you run toward the liar? Jesus Christ does. 
He runs toward the liar. That his blood, his life, his death, his resurrection would atone for theirs. That's how Jesus walks. He does not run toward sinners to say, that's okay. You just be you. You live however you want. I'll take care of it with dad. He does not do that. He runs toward the person to say, your sin is so serious, it requires eternal judgment. Your sin is so serious, it requires punishment in hell forever. Your sin is so serious that even though I'm God, I decided that would not be something I use for myself, but I would empty self and humble self and take on the form of a man and go to a cross kind of death because I want to save you. That's how serious your sin is. The eternal God will die for it. If you will just know me, if you will just receive me, if you will just believe in me, I can save you. My cross atones for your sin. Walk as Jesus walked. The people of the state of Minnesota, through their legislature and through their lives, are turning this place into a moral and social cesspool. Run toward sinners, just like Jesus runs into the muck of your life to be your advocate and plead his blood for you. So your commission from this text, get serious about your sin. Take off the parking brake. Work in the power of the Spirit to keep his commandments and follow the map. And walk as Jesus walks. He's a Savior who runs toward sinners. And if you need to talk more about your sin and knowing Jesus, or you need to talk more about your sin and dealing with it and coming to Jesus, Tom and Patrick and Kevin and Pastor Luke and I will be kind of up here after the service. If you want to talk and pray more, if you want to grab one of us in the fellowship hall when we're having coffee, please do that. It's part of our privilege as your shepherds. It's your commission. Take off the parking brake. Follow the map. And walk as Jesus walked. Run toward sinners. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text that does not play games with us. Thank you for a text that shows the reality and the seriousness of sin and that shows the beauty and the glory of the cross. Help us to remember that life has two themes. There is the minor theme of rebellion and there is the major theme of meaningfulness and purposefulness because you redeemed us in Christ. I pray now that you would help us to walk as your son has walked, that other people would know you because we were here. And help us to be conformed ourselves to the life and the image of your son, that we might have assurance of salvation and that the assessment given to us is we are trustworthy teachers of others to bring them to Christ. We're grateful and thank you. In Christ's name, amen.